David, you're a handsome little brother when you vax that thing up. <laughs> Welcome to Consumer Choice Radio. We're broadcasting on your radios internationally around the world on Big Talker 106.7 FM out of Wilmington, North Carolina and Saga 960 AM out of the Peel region in Ontario, Canada. Also on ConsumerChoiceRadio.com. I'm one half of your host, Yael Ososki, coming to you from the European heat wave in Vienna, Austria. And I'm joined as always by my colleague, David Clement here on Consumer Choice Radio, who's out there in Toronto. David, how goes it? Oh, it's going well. It's going well. I was able to finally get a haircut, um, so that is good news. Um, I look a lot better than I did before, so very excited about that. And, uh, yeah, other than that, just enjoying the Stanley Cup Finals, enjoying the Euro Cup, and watching that unfold. So it's, it's been a good week. Yeah, a lot of sports stuff happening. Uh, it's a big time for that. The summer months, particularly in July, there's a lot of the finals. I know we are uh, looking at a lot of the teams, a lot of the action. I'm fresh from the F1 race here in Austria, um, so that was a good adventure. And there's a lot more racing in uh, throughout the month of July if people are interested. And uh, yeah, so much. I wish we could give um, you know some great updates and stuff on the Stanley Cup. Uh, but we uh, we pre-record a little bit, so unfortunately, I won't be able to uh, you know spoil. Yes. Um, what happened last night though was amazing, wasn't it? Dan? No. <laughs> well, I don't know. Actually, maybe because <laughs> we're go. coming to you on Thursday. I may be extremely happy because the Montreal Canadiens have been eliminated, and the Tampa Bay Lightning have won the Stanley Cup. Or I may be incredibly frustrated because we're going to Game Six. Um, so we'll see but what wouldn't happens. you wouldn't you want to be in the position though of supporting another Canadian team, or is the rivalry just too deep? No, 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 no. So uh, I'm going to go on a bit of a rant here, but the people. This is for all the people who think the Montreal Canadiens are Canada's team. They are not. They cannot be, and they never will be. There is no Canada's team. Different markets hate each other too much. Um, it would be like telling Boston Red Sox fans to root for the Yankees if they were in the playoffs against the Blue Jays. Not going to happen. Um, well, I would say the dimension that's different is if they were playing in, like, the Japanese league or something, and they were the only other American team. So it's like, are you pulling for America? Are you pulling for Canada, David? Apparently not. No, no, no. The Montreal Canadiens are not Canada's team. And I would say the same if the Leafs were in the finals. The Leafs wouldn't be Canada's team either. They're my team. They're not your team. You have your own team. Stick with them. They're my team. <laughs> so no. Um, oh, I, I, I do hope that um, I do hope that the the Tampa Bay Lightning win the Stanley Cup. Although it's not great. I mean, I, I guess it's not bad to see a team go back to back. But um, yeah, we can't really discuss this too much because, as you said, uh, we are recording prior to the game being played. So same goes for. Another another interesting thing is obviously watching this as a French Canadian and seeing interviews with all the players. 
they're all in English because <laughs> yeah. all the players are from all over the world. And, yeah. you know, I don't even remember now how many are, are actually French speaking. Is it still nil or they got one or two guys? No, they, they always have one or two um, French speaking players like Quebec, Quebecers. Uh, and the coach um, very rarely is not from Quebec. Uh, that no, is no. The, yeah, the, co- the coach yeah. that I know. I, yeah, I remember the- Georges Larac was uh, sort of one of the big last sort of French-speaking players yeah. uh, that they had many yeah. years ago. No, no, they, they have a handful. Um, they, they, there's, always, there's always a few on the roster. Um, so they've certainly kept representation in that regard. But, uh, I mean, the thing, the thing that gets me about the playoffs is, I mean, in the arena, which I will begrudgingly say is probably at full capacity the loudest uh, and most exciting arena in all of probably professional sports, um, you still have that significantly limited audience of a few thousand. But the thing that really gets me is you have probably 30,000 people jammed shoulder to shoulder outside of the arena. And it just kind of makes a mockery of the fact that they're limiting in-person attendance. Because, again, it would be very easy for... Uh, for the Bell Center to be open for tickets to people who are two weeks past their second dose, and you would have 20,000 people in the arena. Um, so it's a real disservice for the fans. It's a real disservice for the players, because obviously when they're playing in Tampa, it's a full arena. Um, but I know we've talked about some of these restrictions. and Yeah, maybe there's some snowbirds though, that are that are watching this and having a good time. Well, since you mentioned um, vaccine doses and stuff, David, I've got a song for you. Ooh. I know uh, you don't need encouragement to take the vaccine, but various people do need encouragement. And uh, we have this brand new uh, public service announcement uh, telling everybody to get vaccinated. Are you ready for this one? Ooh, let's hear it, yeah. David, you're a handsome little brother when you vax that thing up. <laughs> who, who, what, please tell me that's not a public health project. No, I, I don't know what it is. I think it's it's a, some group called BTK or something. I couldn't find them online. Other okay. people <laughs> might know who they who they are, but vax that thing up. I mean, there's a whole song there. Yeah, um, whatever it link, takes. Whatever it takes. We can if, link a, to that. if a nice little jingle gets people out to go get vaccinated, I'll take it. Let's do it. Yeah, but we got something else creeping around the corner, David. Something that's Ooh. infesting um, all sectors. In all countries, and something that we need to look out for, and we need to go underneath the covers because it's the Delta variant. As our nation returns closer to pre-pandemic life, tonight the Delta variant is COVID's most serious threat, the most dangerous strain so far, now contributing to a rise in infections in eight states. Just as concerts sell out in summer crowds return to popular venues, the unvaccinated could prolong and exacerbate the pandemic. It's starting to accelerate really quickly in the U.S. So last week, about 10% of the virus isolates were the Delta variant. Now it's up to 19%. So it seems to have a pretty regular regular doubling. (laughs) While 65% of adults are at least partially vaccinated, 
vaccinated, the Delta variant has now been detected in nearly every state and is gaining a stronger foothold in regions highlighted here with low vaccination rates. In Missouri, the Delta variant has been found in wastewater, showing its vast community spread. It's coming. You're at risk. Um, you're a sitting duck if you're not vaccinated. Across the country, the vaccine holdouts remain the young. Less than 40% are inoculated, compared to more than double that rate for seniors. But perhaps those most in jeopardy are children under 12 who can't yet get vaccinated. When you're vaccinated, you serve as a wall, as a barrier. Uh, to infection coming into your home, into your community. The more of us that can get vaccinated, the bigger of a wall we can build around. So, David, I have a lot of thoughts on that. Um, wondering, you followed the reporting on yeah. this. You know what it's like. What, what are your thoughts here? So, I mean, I think Reason had a, had a very good article um, that summed up my thoughts. They said, should you worry about the Delta variant? If you're vaccinated, probably not. Um, and that's generally my my view on this. I mean, I think it's the Pfizer vaccine, for example, is like 94% effective in stopping severe sickness from the Delta variant. And that's really the point. Um, and we're starting to see some government officials change their tone from COVID zero to something a little more appropriate. I, I forget who it was in the UK, but one of Boris Johnson's ministers essentially said, well, I mean, we're just going to get to the point where there are enough people vaccinated, it is effective enough to stop severe sickness, and for in, in many instances, the spread of the disease. And so it just becomes something that is easily manageable that people no longer die from. Um, and I think that that's probably a healthy approach, but it's hard, it would be hard for someone with, with, with little knowledge to have that viewpoint based on the headlines, because... I mean, full-blown zombie apocalypse is, is seems to be the the narrative of of how this is being covered. And that's that was going to be my major point is the way that they're framing this and making it that it's out to get your kids and and just the it's the most dangerous, most highly contagious, and you know then they kind of throw it in there for the unvaccinated, which is true. And you know we there's nothing you can't deny that. But is, you know, for the majority of the country that has been fully vaccinated, is this an issue that we need to bring up? I mean, it just seems like when we're looking at the total amount of cases, I'm looking uh, for the United States here. Uh, the latest number we have is 12,000 cases. Now, yeah, that's pretty low. should we still have the same level of alarm? No, I don't, I don't think Probably so. Probably not. The, and the thing about how this is being reported is that the virus the Delta variant isn't more deadly. It's more infectious. And that's a very important point because the virus trends downward yes. in terms of how likely it is to actually kill you or cause severe sickness. Um, but in the process, it becomes more infectious. So it is certainly more infectious, but on a case-by-case basis, it is less likely to kill you. Now, obviously, there are other factors at play if you have other underlying health issues, if you're not vaccinated, etc. Well, then risks go up. Um, but I mean, like that reason headline said, if you're vaccinated, um, should you be worrying about the Delta variant? Probably not. Um, probably not. And, and at, at this point, you know, it's coming, it's coming to Canada very soon, where it'll be so available that essentially it'll be fairly simple for anyone to get vaccinated day of. 
when you have it that available, you know, to still continue to churn out public policy that caters to that, I think is is very harmful. And uh, specifically, the more that we're getting about the effectiveness of the vaccines, as you mentioned, 94% for the Pfizer vaccine against this and all variants. And uh, there's a number that was put together by the uh, the MRC Biostatistics Unit over there in the United Kingdom, and they've been doing calculations from the very beginning about the infection fatality rate. And if we remember, the big thing about uh, COVID in the very beginning is we heard from China and from the early World Health Organization reports that fatality was anywhere between 3 and 5%. Uh, that was, you know, obviously very troubling. Uh, the number that we have now is 0. 0.085%. So it's still less than 1 in 1,000. Again, not to say that uh, we're denying anything. It's just to, just to give some perspective. No, I actually no, have no, no additional not. comment to that number. No, we are not. Certainly not. I mean, we've been... Um, we, we've long held that the virus is real, um, that, it, that it is serious, but at the same time, vaccinations allow for us to treat this as a manageable public health issue rather than something worthy of, of lockdowns and all of the other things that also have consequences. Very true. And, uh, you know, there's a lot more reporting that will come out about this. I, I think it's, it's fairly unfortunate the way that things have been covered and the way that it is scaring a lot of people. And even the recommendations that are coming out from at least the American health authorities and the World Health Organization is that even if you are fully vaccinated past two weeks, you should still be wearing your mask and all of this. Uh, yeah, I don't know how much more you want to talk about that. No, uh, mean, but something that does affect all of us, affects businesses, affects consumers, how, and, uh, you know, specific how, restrictions as well yeah, in the future. How excited are you for the day when we know, like I look back to like before our lives got crazy, how excited are you for the day where we can do a radio show where we don't have to worry or talk about any of this stuff anymore? <laughs> that will be a, that maybe we'll pop a bottle of champagne and be like, yeah, we're finally done talking about COVID. <laughs> um, not here, not there yet, but hopefully soon, hopefully soon. Um, yeah. Oh, no. And, and the second that we can get you out to travel, David, and get you out of Ontario and uh, get you flying around the world, get you these, you know, star-studded arenas uh, for the speaking tour, I think that'll be good. <laughs> um, but yeah, that'll be fun. And you guys uh, stay tuned here to Consumer Choice Radio. We have plenty more to come. Uh, we're going to be talking about tech regulation policy. I know David's got some syntax stuff, some regulatory things I know he wants to cover. So plenty more. Stay tuned. Consumer Choice Radio. And Nancy Pelosi. And Nancy Pelosi. All right. We'll be right back after this. And we're back on Consumer Choice Radio, coming to you on Saga 960 AM in the Peel region, Ontario, as well uh, on the Big Talker FM 106.7 out of Wilmington, North Carolina. Um, yeah, yeah, we have to talk about the story that broke about Nancy Pelosi and her husband's investing. Um, kind of policy wonky stuff, but I think the broad strokes here are, at least from my view, pretty concerning. Um, pretty concerning. So do you want to just tee up what has happened 
um, in terms of what's been disclosed and her investments in some of these big tech companies that are under review from from Washington. Yes, of course. So this is uh, coming out of uh, Twitter. Uh, now, there's been a little bit of reporting on this as well. Uh, so this has to do with Nancy Pelosi. She is the Speaker of the House. Uh, she is third in line to the presidency, one of the most powerful people in the entire country. And uh, if you tie it to the military, probably the world. And what we got, uh, because all members of Congress, um, I think the last 10 years now, have had to publicly declare all of their various trades and things that they do in stock options. And uh, this came out, I believe it was yesterday, that in May, in late May, Nancy Pelosi played some call options on Amazon and Apple and uh, NVIDIA. And, um, you know, these are all companies that obviously fall into the purview of American regulation. But more pressing is that, as we know, Amazon and Apple specifically have been hauled before Congress. There's all types of regulation that is being discussed about what the future of antitrust will be, about how these companies will be regulated, should they be broken up. And while all this is happening, Nancy Pelosi is playing the market. Uh, so one of the top uh, hedge fund people in the world, and these are not you know small options. She's trading anywhere between 500000 and a million dollars each. Um, and that's calls, so that's, uh, that's a lot of money. Yeah, and, and for the layman who, I mean, these, sometimes these are very complicated terms. Essentially, she's making a bet that those stocks will go up. Um, so she's betting in favor of those tech stocks. Now, what makes stocks this... Stocks only go up, though. We know this. <laughs> but what, what makes this incredibly strange or problematic is that she's obviously... She obviously has insider information available to her on how these proceedings are going and what the intention of Congress is going to be. Um, and it really raises a question of whether or not elected officials should be able to be active investors. Um, the more I sit on this, the more I feel like the answer should be no. Um, and I know that Mitt Romney said something about this years ago when he ran for president because someone was like, well, you have money tied up in all of these companies and what about your vested interests and all of that? And they were fair points. And he said, well, I'll put everything on a blind trust, uh, meaning it's not actively managed. It's just managed by somebody else. And when he's done, um, when he's finished serving, he can kind of go back to uh, being a private citizen and doing whatever he wants. I kind of like that approach. I know it's it would be limiting like their ability to invest and, and do whatever. But at the same time, there's a really nefarious side of this. And we saw it with um, uh, the, the senator. Was it Purdue? And in Georgia, no, that he was, got um, Dane Loffer, No, that was maybe, uh, Richard. That's, a North Car that's our own North Carolina senator. Oh, oh uh, yeah, Richard yeah, Burr, yeah. actually. Yeah, Richard Burr. Um, I mean, yeah, it just raises questions to... They obviously have privileged information in regards to what government decisions are going to be, and those government decisions drastically, like significantly impact the um, the stock price and the the health of whatever these companies are. They kind of weigh in the balance. Um, what's your take here? Would you be in favor of something where people who are in Congress or the Senate or the President essentially have to? step away from from their investments or do you think that 
do we do we give her the benefit of the doubt or other elected officials the benefit of the doubt that they're not acting on insider information? Yeah, well, they definitely are. I mean, they, they know what's coming. You know, they're in conversations with the actual regulators or sometimes the people in the company. Um, if anyone's interested in a book about this, the big one that, that made waves about 10 years ago now, actually, I didn't know it was that long. I remember doing a review about it, is Throw Them All Out by Peter Schweitzer, how politicians and their friends get rich off insider stock tips, land deals, and cronyism that would send the rest of us to prison. Uh, I don't know if there should be an additional law. I think this transparency is very good. I think it should be used as a kind of rhetorical weapon any time that they come up and, you know, lecture average, uh, average normal people about, you know, the stock market or trading or, or anything like this. And it is true that a lot of people have gotten insanely rich. You know, I think the better approach is just to say, let's not get to the point where the government can regulate so much that they can have inside information about what company X or Y does. I think that, I mean, that's a lofty goal. I don't know if that will happen. But it seems to me if we forbid uh, people who are in government from transacting on the stock market, um, yeah, I hate to take this approach, but at least at the state level and I know at the provincial level, you know, a lot of people are not millionaires. Nancy Pelosi definitely is a millionaire, but a lot of people aren't millionaires. A lot of people do this as their sort of side gig. In many states, it doesn't pay anything to be a state legislator. Not that you know too much about some companies, but you never know with regulation. So I'd be a bit wary about trying to do something that would forbid them or do a blind trust. I do think, though, holding them accountable, exposing this as much as possible, uh, yeah, definitely, that's par for the course. Yeah, ah, I don't know. I, I still think I fall maybe on the the other side here where it just it, it stinks. It just feels uncomfortable. Yeah, it feels uncomfortable that the the system could be so easily gamed. Um, but I do agree with you that I mean a better scenario would certainly be one <laughs> one where the government really isn't making these very very complicated decisions on regulatory policy to the point where it swings or skews the market so much. Um, I think that's the that would be yeah, the, and it's especially when it comes to the especially when it comes to the taxation of this. You know, if she does win this huge gain, you know the this, the taxes that she's writing the tax code, right? So yeah, if if there's a particular way where she knows she can advantage, uh, yeah, that'll be bad. And she's not the only one who knows a lot about taxes too. I know more about taxes than any human being that God ever created. Right. <laughs> So he knows so much. He knows many people and taxes. He loves them. Um, yeah, I mean, it is one of those things where it's like, and I, I hate to like jump on some of these cheesy headlines, but when you see something like Nancy Pelosi's net worth is a hundred million dollars, and I mean, you can map out her salary for all the years she's been in Congress and what her take-home pay would have been, and then you just start scratching your head and you're like, hmm, okay. This feels weird. And then obviously you see head, the headlines of the last week and you're like, ah, this this feels really uncomfortable. And then part of it is jealousy. It's like, how do I <laughs> how do I get in on how, this how game? Can I, how can I throw 500K down on some bet? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I can see that. And it is true. And I, I think no matter what, and even if I, I say that, you know, we shouldn't have some law against it, and it has gotten better, you know, since that book came out in 2011, uh, there were laws that made it so that you could actually have that stuff publicly available. 
previously, as far as I understood, there was just a ledger that was housed in the Congress that you could go into the room and read it, but you weren't allowed to take pictures, you weren't allowed to make copies. Um, essentially, it was almost impossible to really track this. And for a lot of these Congress people, they make a lot of trades. Uh, the, the one that you mentioned before, Richard Burr, North Carolina, the big thing there is right before they announced uh, essentially that uh, the U.S. would have various restrictions on a federal level, uh, he sold off all the major stocks that would have been affected uh, right away. Mm-hmm. And uh, actually, yes, in Georgia, Kelly Loeffler, she did the same thing. Uh, so they, they were kind of both in the same camp. I guess they have the same tax guy or investment guy as far <laughs> as I know. Yeah, you just they get the nod and they know to sell everything before the pandemic hits. But And I guess this isn't as big of a problem in Canada just because many of the larger companies are um, American in these kind of regulatory spheres, but I'm sure it's happened or I'm sure there there's plenty of something that's going on. I know that's been a big deal for Trudeau, how much is actually in that blind trust and, and how much he actually actively controls, were, uh, particularly with these foundations, right? Yeah, there were some questions about Paul Martin because he comes, if I remember correctly, from a family that owned one of the largest shipping companies. Um, but I'm fairly certain, now this was years ago and I was much younger, so I may be misremembering, um, but I'm fairly certain that when he was finance minister and then later prime minister, he stepped away from all of that. And so he was at arm's length to avoid any conflict of interest. And then, if I remember correctly, he actually recused himself from any instance where he would be voting on policy that would directly impact that particular company. Um, hmm. Which I good, which, good guy, Paul Martin. Very yeah, good. yeah. I mean, that's... That is how it is supposed to be done. I can only assume that there are probably some folks who don't live up to that standard. But, uh, yeah, beyond uh, beyond weird financial transactions from elected officials, what else do you have on the docket um, for this week's show that's pressing? I know I have one with with the rise of the nanny state. It is back. But I don't, I don't know if you have anything you want to chat about prior to us getting yeah, to Yeah, actually, let's do the nanny state. I think that's a, an important deal. And it's happening in various countries around the world. I'm seeing, I'm tracking this now, that as people are coming out of lockdowns and going into recovery, many governments have spent untold billions of dollars in euros uh, to try to give money to businesses, to institutions, uh, whoever it might be. I mean, I just learned the other day that the uh, U.S. airline industry got $25 billion, by the way, in the CARES Act. I didn't know that. Uh, But yeah, we know that many of these governments are going to turn to sin taxes, as they call them. They're going to turn to the nanny state in a way to get money from you, the little person. So David, give us an update. Yeah, I mean, so the two big things that are on my mind, um, they're not actually taxes, which you could maybe attempt to justify because both national governments or many provincial and state governments are broke. Um, so Canada is looking to follow the UK policy of banning all junk food advertisements uh, before 9 p.m. There's a ton of issues with this. I mean, obviously, what is junk food? So you can imagine that the, the consultation process is going to carve out what is junk food and what isn't. Um, and there's probably going to be some concessions and some cronyism there in terms of what is and isn't included in that list. Um, and it's all done in the uh, with the idea of trying to tackle childhood uh, obesity, which is a big problem. I think one in three Canadian Canadian children are are, are overweight, um, and I was I would assume that trend is similar in the U.S. And so 
we dug into this a little bit, actually, uh, our UK colleague Jason and I, and the UK's own forecast um, in terms of how many calories per day it would reduce um, is pretty telling in terms of why this is a bad policy to implement. And I, I pitched this to actually a couple friends of mine, and one of them said, well, it'll probably, I think it's going to be around, what, 35 calories a day reduction? Um, the actual real figure is 1.7 calories per day. So that's 1 30th of an Oreo. Um, so it's going to have no impact on obesity. While at this, and I think that's, I think that's the suggested serving size, too, is 1 30th yeah, of an yeah. Oreo. So, and, and, and this is the thing. Is that, so in order to reduce uh, childhood caloric intake by 1 30th of an Oreo a day, we're going to ban advertisements to adults in the process because that's really what we're talking about right this isn't a a bill that says okay for children's programming so you can't have a a hershey's ad running in the middle of a paw patrol episode Um, that's not what the proposal is it's you can't have a hershey's ad or any pick any brand Um, you can't have an advertisement in any programming before 9 p.m and so you could be watching something that is not for children at all and you'd still be li- you'd still be Im- impacted and limited um, by this law so it's incredibly paternalistic because they're they're using childhood obesity which is a real issue to basically bring forward a policy that includes adults and for me that just doesn't make any sense and it's obviously not going to work based on the UK's own forecast of the same policy and i mean it's important to note that if if any forecast is going to be too generous, it's going to be the government's own forecast of what the impact of the policy is. Um, and so it's more than likely that the actual impact of 1.7 is much lower. Um, and so it just it, it scratches my head in terms of priorities. And then there's another proposal on the books to start putting health warnings on 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 uh, energy drinks and things like that. But we'll have to get to that after the break. And we'll be right back here on Consumer Choice Radio. And we're back here on Consumer Choice Radio, broadcasting on Saga 960 AM and the Big Talker 106.7 FM. David, before we went to break, you are telling us about uh, some of these ad restrictions, um, that, uh, particularly those aimed at children from so-called junk food companies. Uh, this, is, um, you know, this is a family program, so we can say that this bag of Oreos is delicious, and I would recommend it. Uh, but you go into sort of the more problematic aspects of this and just basically how it's not going to be effective at all. And I think that's that's a point that's never brought up is we're never looking at whether it actually works. It's all about the intentions. Yeah, exactly. And, and it, I mean, the, the second policy that's been put forward is, is essentially warning labels on Gatorade and energy drinks, um, like almost like a black tobacco style warning label on the front of every Gatorade bottle. And it's like, guys, come on, really? Like, this is the priority right now? Um, one, it's not even necessary. I mean, for most of these products, there are already limits on what can be in them. So like the example of an energy drink, they have a caffeine cap, they have the don't drink if you're pregnant, all of those things, which are probably appropriate. Um, but just to go the next level, it's like real, the nanny state never sleeps. They're, they're, there's always mission creep and they're always moving on to 
another product that you like um and that's part of the reason why we do what we do but um, and that's true yeah and you know david you're not alone in, in being worried about this and it is true that there is international pressure that's ramping up uh, there's actually a paper that came out in the british medical journal i believe it was last month making the case for an international health treaty on obesity and uh, overeating they call it and the idea would be to have a kind of large international treaty organization whereby there would be recommendations on regu- uh, policy and different regulations and taxes, and that every country that would implement this would earn some brownie points or some grants or some money. They'd be able to partner with some NGOs. It would be exactly what's happening with the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control and Vaping Laws. Uh, so there's talk about it already, and uh, if you know we're following the money here, that's probably what's going to end up happening. So if you if you haven't heard about uh, these restrictions yet, uh, I'm pretty sure David that they're going to hear about them very soon. Yeah, yeah. Let's not let's not do some global body to try and tackle this. And you know what? The, the thing that really bothers me about all of this is that every policy suggestion always ignores the second half of the equation of obesity, which is physical activity. So no one is suggesting policies to actually promote physical activity or, I mean, you could create all sorts of, I mean, they may be complicated, they may be messy, they may actually not be worth pursuing. Um, Whether or not they're effective, we don't know, because nobody in the public health world is actually suggesting anything to promote physical activity. I'll give you a good example. A good example, David, when I was in school, when I was a young man, uh, the big you know, incentive that you had for reading books and getting points is that you'd get the, you know, coupon to go to Pizza Hut once a month, right? So the way that they're kind of proposing this is, well, no, 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 we shouldn't send them to Pizza Hut. You know, we should send them to Sweet Green or some, you know, uh, they should you know get a McDonald's salad coupon rather than like, I don't know, free membership to a gym or a rock climbing thing or a bouncy house or, you know, something where you're doing activities or uh, you're able to join a soccer league or something like that. I, th- I think you're definitely on point there. You know, we're, we don't focus enough on that. And it also removes from the equation parents, you know, it just assumes that kids, I guess, are walking around at seven, eight years old with, you know, 300 bucks a week and they can go and buy all the junk food in the world, not knowing that parents actually decide mostly what they provide their kids. And they have a responsibility and they should make healthy decisions, but it's not up to the government Uh, to try to propagandize us uh, in a particular direction. Yeah, yeah. Depressing stuff, depressing stuff. Um, Well, let's let's pick you up, David. Um, We've got a new political player on the scene. Um, Here's a guy who is uh, making his sort of entry into the political field. Uh, His name is J.D. Vance. Oh, boy. Who has, uh, he's caught on a little bit. I mean, he, he had a, a best-selling book called The uh, Hillbilly Elegy, which I, I do have. I've read about half of it. I didn't watch the movie yet. Uh, apparently, it's actually pretty good, uh, what with Glenn Close. Uh, but here's a guy who came from poverty, uh, entered the military, became a lawyer. Uh, he's sort of seen as a you know social conservative bootstrap fella. And uh, he has declared his intention uh, to be the next U.S. senator from the state of Ohio, and uh, he's been making the rounds, and I got to tell you, David, this guy has a mishmash of bad ideas. So let's go to uh, <laughs> let's go to his interview with um, our favorite uh, fellow Canadian, Mark Stein. 
Uh, J.D., for some of us, a, a lot of Republicans uh, talk too much about, uh, you know, lowering sales tax rates in the cocktail bar of the Titanic. Uh, you seem to be a bit more urgent about some of the big picture questions. Yeah, that's exactly right, uh, Mark, and thanks for having me on. And if folks are interested, please go to JDVance.com to learn more about our campaign. I mean, look, I, I think we're facing an existential crisis in this country where you have the leadership of the country that really doesn't seem to care about the country or the people who live in it. They are undercutting our wages through mass immigration. They're shipping a lot of our manufacturing base off to China, allowing the Chinese to build their middle class on the backs of ours. And they're increasingly unwilling to even reckon with their own failure. And so if you're a normal guy looking at your country going to hell and you complain about it, they call you a racist or a bigot or a xenophobe or maybe just a garden variety idiot. And I think somebody needs to step up and say, look, this is not okay. It's not okay to plunder this country that our, our grandparents and our parents built. It's also not okay to shoot us down, to censor us on our big tech platforms every time that we want to complain about it. And both of those things are happening. The economic war against the middle class, the cultural war against traditional American values. And I think they're very related. So that's uh, J.D. Vance. Uh, whoops, that's J.D. Vance uh, there on, I think, I think it was on Fox News. Really interesting, you know, portrayal of, I guess, modern conservatism or populism. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. What's your reaction to that, David? Um, I mean, the, the idea that mass immigration is lowering wages is false, um, with the exception of Americans who don't have a high school education. They're the only uh, cohort that is negatively impacted by an influx of migrants in terms of the labor market. I mean, there's a ton of peer-reviewed research on that. And most of their loss is overcome by reduced prices on goods that you buy. Um, so that's wrong. I mean, when, when he kind of appeals to nostalgia and, like, the country that our parents and grandparents built, it's like, where are your parents and grandparents from? For most Americans, they were immigrants. And the funny thing is, is that this is the old trope used time and time again against immigration. And it, it, it's done in a way that fails to remember the fact um, that for the most part, most of our parents or grandparents or great-grandparents came from another country and they were met with that same type of negative resentment and fear-mongering and scapegoating it was all wrong then and it's all wrong now um so it's just i mean i'm a, a child of two immigrant families so that message certainly doesn't resonate with me i know you fall into a similar box and i know many of our listeners um fall into that box as well um so it's just it's tiring i mean it's he, he's really just regurgitating the Trump narrative of 2016, um, which is stale. I mean, bring us something more inspiring than trying to put a, a veneer on the Trump administration's policies. It, 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 oh, yeah. yeah. If we look at immigration, even overall, you know, the numbers have been fairly low in terms of new admitted uh, immigrants, really going back since 2008. Uh, when the economy tanked. And this kind of return to nativism, I think is very concerning, uh, because that is, it's just not something that we practice in North America. It just isn't, because it goes against the very founding of whether it be the U.S. or Canada, 
you, it's hard to be a nativist because it's absolutely ridiculous because no one has been here for 300, 400 years. Nobody has. You know, we've built this country up or this country or that country. All of us have done that. It's been a collective project. And I think I think you're totally right. He's using the old Trump playbook. And it's really, you know, disconcerting to think that that is still working. I do know that, you know, here's a guy who his story is is very well known just because he wrote a book about it. Uh, but, you know, he's not an undereducated fella. You know, when you, you became a lawyer from Yale and uh, you made some money in the hedge fund market, uh, you know, he's sort of playing the Trump playbook again of the, the rich guy who's uh, speaking to the working class. Yeah, but at the same time, if you went to Yale and you were involved in the financial sector in any way, you are the elite. You are the person you think, like, the, the, the very people you're accusing of ruining the country are you. Um, and this was part of the Trump mantra that I never understood because he was very much in that world for so long. Um, and I wanted to play his clips because I think he is speaking to something that will be the dominant narrative and it will impact policy. So here's um, his take on big tech and social media, something I know we discuss a lot. So uh, here's him on the same program. The big reason is that the right is really terrified of power. I think the left is enthusiastic about using power. The right is terrified of power. So just take one example, right? The big tech companies, which effectively control the flow of information in our society. Now, you cannot speak your mind as a conservative without fear of getting censored by Facebook, Twitter, Apple, whoever else. Well, if you try to do something, when I say we should be doing something about big tech, breaking up their monopolies, making their business model, which effectively just allows them to steal data from us, making that business model illegal or unacceptable, what people always say is, well, these are private companies. We can't do anything right. about them. Well, first of all, that's total BS. They're not private companies. Yeah. They've been given special f privileges by the government for decades. And on the other hand, what do we care more about? The interests of multinational companies that hate this country or the First Amendment? I care more about the First Amendment. Now, that's an interesting trope back to like 1970s leftism of, <laughs> well, these are public companies. They should operate in the public trust and the government uh, monopoly. Well, and this is the thing is that he he contradicts him. He's like, what are we supposed to care more about? Um, multinational corporations are the First Amendment. And it's like, well, you're talking about consti the constitutional values of limited government. You can't, like, he, he's essentially saying principles be damned. These are the outcomes that I want. And we should use the state to get those outcomes, regardless of whether or not we're incoherent in terms of how consistent we are. And that's exactly what it is. Um, yeah, it's just, again, old, stale arguments in favor of really intervening with, with using the government to intervene. And it, I always go back to the Obama era, right? Democrats kind of sat by and let Obama pass policy by executive order and a lot of people complained said the president shouldn't be able to do this legislators should be making law and it should go to his desk for approval or whatever and the warning from from republicans uh, right-minded republicans at the time was everything that you do will be able to do and so any intervention or policy that you want to implement imagine if your opposition also had that power or wielded the same stick and so 
for for Republicans who are just clamoring for more government power, uh, I mean, you're just throwing a softball in the direction of folks like AOC um, or progressives or all of the people you really dislike. And so the more power you give government, the more power your opposition is going to have if slash when they're in power. And that's like that seems to be something that's completely missing from the modern Republican uh, discussion on this. The pendulum always swings back. It certainly does. No, it no truer does. words have been spoken. Uh, well, David, in our, <laughs> our closing moments here, uh, it was great to, to chat here on Consumer Choice Radio. We've got some good guests lined up for the rest of the summer. I know it's uh, it's hot out there. There might be some restrictions. Still got to wear masks. But overall, David, I think there's a, there's a lot to be uh, looking forward to, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, things are looking up. Vaccination rates are going up. Things are opening. Life is slowly getting back to normal. And hopefully we can get back to talking about uh, the politics of the day rather than the pandemic that feels like it's raged on for two years now. <laughs> and that's a wrap. That's how we do it. All right, we'll talk to you guys next week. that does it for consumer choice radio thank you for joining us for the hour and for all the other past shows and archives check with consumer choice radio for much more consumer choice radio hosted by yael asoski and myself david clement is a syndicated weekly conversation featuring the latest news interviews and expert analysis that covers consumer topics from around the world focusing on innovation tech regulatory policy and science Tune in every week to learn why consumer choice matters. You can find all of our previous episodes, interviews, and show notes over on consumerchoiceradio.com, as well as the podcast version of this show. And as always, be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you do listen to your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at Consumer Radio, myself at Y-A-E-L-O-S-S, and David at Clement Liberty. And find our interviews on YouTube and Instagram just looking up Consumer Choice Radio. If there is a consumer issue affecting you that you think that we should cover, email us directly at hello at consumerchoiceradio.com. Thank you again for listening.
through COVID-19. Hallelujah.